Thank you to our worship team. We appreciate you and your hard work. And uh, some of you would have seen them scrambling before the service, fixing things. Thank you to our, our tech team. And I appreciate that when all that scrambling happens, uh, you still bring it all together. We wouldn't even know how scrambled you were. So thanks for serving that way. And it's been a full day already and a good day already. And I want to invite you to turn now in your Bible to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. And as I look out, I'm mindful of the fact that we do have a lot of guests with us today. And so you're jumping in midway through a sermon series in the book of Acts. Uh, I want to share with you maybe a few details just so you can understand uh, just what this book is, what we're looking at. The book of Acts recounts the story of really the earliest days of the New Testament church. It begins with Jesus having risen from the grave, right? Jesus died on the cross, but then three days later he rose from the grave and and then he proceeded to teach his disciples and he, he appeared to his believers, his followers, and then he ascended to heaven. And that's really the beginning of the book of Acts. He ascends to heaven, but he leaves his church and he tells them, you're gonna receive power. I'm gonna send my spirit and then you are going to be my witnesses and you're gonna go out into the world from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. That's Acts chapter one, verse eight. And so now we're watching as the gospel is spreading, as the kingdom of of Jesus Christ is advancing in the world. Even though he has ascended to heaven, he's still working powerfully in the world and he's working in and through his church. So that's the story. And we've been following a particular man, the Apostle Paul, for this last little stretch in the, in the book of Acts. He was a terrorist. He, he hated Jesus and hated people who loved Jesus. But then Jesus appeared to him and his entire life changed. And he, now we call him the Apostle Paul. And we watch him as he's the world's greatest missionary. And we've been following him. And today we follow him into the, a city called Ephesus. And this is a really special city Paul was blessed to stay in the city for between two to three years, which is a long time for Paul. Sometimes he'd be in a city for a week or a month. A lot of times he'd be chased out of the city while they threw rocks at him. But here in the city of Ephesus, he has an opportunity to to teach and to, to minister for an extended period of time, two to three years. And yet what's significant is that that two to three year ministry is summarized with three short little episodes in the book of Acts. So you can just imagine if the last three years of your life were summarized in three little, you know, this happened, this happened, and this happened. One of the things we should note this morning is that obviously there's something significant about these episodes. Luke could have told us anything about Paul's time in Ephesus, but he's telling us these three things. So there's something here that we're meant to see. Now, next Sunday we're going to look at the big riot in Ephesus. And and I would argue that Luke is building us up to that moment This city is about to get turned on its head. He's been ministering for two to three years, and Ephesus is about to really just explode in this big gospel movement, and it's going to cause a great clash, a great conflict. Our text this morning is really setting the stage for what we're going to see next week. So our text this morning is preparing us to understand the kind of ministry that turns a city upside down. Okay, so as we read, that's what we want to hear. We're, we're looking at the kind of ministry that turns a city upside down. Look with me now to Acts chapter 19. I hope you have your Bibles open. And we're going to be reading from verse 8 all the way to verse 20. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, 
he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is a, a powerful story. This is a city that's about to be turned on its head. But I am mindful that uh, this story has a few details that, that raise a few questions. I'm going to guess. If you're hearing this story for the first time, or maybe you've heard this story a number of times, it is the kind of story that has, some details just have more gravity than other ones. They, they pull in your attention the way that others don't. And, and so one of the preacher decisions we need to make is every once in a while we say, okay, well, we're going to deal with that when we, when we get to it. But then sometimes you say, you know what? Until we deal with that, there are going to be people in the room who are just, who are just fixated on those details. Like, why are, why are Paul's handkerchiefs healing people? And why don't my handkerchiefs ever heal people? And should they? Those kinds of questions. And what, what was happening with that demon-possessed man, and they're running out naked, and what happened? And those, those are questions that you are natural. They're natural questions after a passage like that. And I would argue that that supernatural element in this story, it's just a piece. And I want us to see all of it, but in order for us to see all of it, I think maybe we do need to just clear the ground and deal with that supernatural detail. So let's just clear the ground and ask, what should we make of this miraculous story? And then we'll look at the story as a whole. First and foremost, as we consider the the supernatural aspect of this story, we need to see that signs and wonders served to validate the ministry of the apostles. So there was a, a, a peculiar uh, volume of miracles that were happening around the ministry of the apostles. And wherever you land on the spectrum of your relationship with miracles, we all recognize that, that, that something crazy was happening with these apostles. And mir- miracles were happening all the time. I think back to chapter 5, when Peter's walking through Jerusalem and just his shadow is touching people and they're getting healed. Right, there's just, there is a, a unique supernatural thing that is happening around these apostles. And so it, it raises the question, well, why? Why was that? Was it because the apostles were, you know, had more faith than we do? Some people would argue that. But as we look at what the apostle Paul explains about these miracles, 
I would suggest he gives us a better explanation. So when he writes to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So Paul is telling this church in Corinth, he says, I, I am an apostle, and you should listen to me, and, and the evidence that I am an apostle is, was seen among you, the signs and the wonders that God was working through me to validate that I am, in fact, an apostle. That's what he was saying. And you'd say, well, why did they need this validation for the apostles? What's such a big deal? Well, it's because the apostles were a big deal. So when Paul wrote to this church in Ephesus later on, he told the church that they were the household of God, and he said, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the apostles had a very important role. They were a foundation, right? These are the men who God is going to use by his spirit to write what we call the New Testament, right? Which we will then take with what the prophets of old wrote in the Old Testament, and this is now going to be our God's word teaching and instructing us. And so God grabbed hold of our attention, and he validated this ministry with signs and wonders and miracles. And so that's what's going on here. But I want to make sure you don't overhear that. Because I'm not suggesting today that, that God no longer works miracles in the world. He does. Not, I would argue, not to the extent that we see here. Not to the regularity that we see here. But does God still heal today? He does. We've seen it. He does work miracles today. But you shouldn't be putting your used handkerchief in your neighbor's mailbox, right? Because you're not an apostle. There, there was something particular, peculiar happening here, okay? So I want to make sure we all hear that, first thing. Second, there's more I want to make sure we see. And second is that there is a spiritual battle being waged all around us. If we're reading this story and missing that, then we've really missed something significant. There is a spiritual battle that's being waged. See, Ephesus was not just a sinful city, not just a lost city, not just a, a, a poorly behaved city. It was a spiritually dark city. False gods were worshipped. Magic was practiced. Demons were taking possession of people. And that's what we see in verses 13 to 16. There are these Jewish men, and they see that powerful things are being done in the name of Jesus, and so they say, let's, let's try that ourselves. And so they, were, they went to a man who was possessed by a demon, and they said, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, get out of this man. And the demon replied, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Church, if, if we take the Bible seriously, like if we, if we believe this, this is a horrifying story. Here we find a story of, of a man, he's, he's possessed by a demon, and, and that possession leads to so much power that seven grown men are overpowered by this demon-possessed man. They are overpowered, they're mastered. It says they run out of that house naked and bleeding and just thankful that they are alive. They went into that house thinking that they could play with supernatural spiritual things. And they came out learning a painful lesson. That spiritual warfare is not a game. And when we look at Paul's ministry in Ephesus, this was one of his main takeaways from his time there. In fact, when he writes back to this church, 
to give them instruction later on, he tells them, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul's telling the Ephesians, you need to, you need to understand, brothers and sisters, that this is a spiritual fight. There is there's real darkness, and you need to conduct yourselves accordingly. This is where Paul writes his great instructions about how we arm ourselves for spiritual warfare, right? G. Campbell Morgan observes, it was in Ephesus that this man, Paul, became supremely conscious of that, conscious of that world of spiritual antagonism, which his writing so clearly revealed, and which we need to recognize even today. And I would say absolutely amen. As we're in this text, as this is what's next for us as a church, let's hear this loud and clear. Evangelism is not simply the task of trying to convince skeptical people of the claims of the Bible. If you go out into the world thinking that that's what evangelism is, you're, you're going to find yourself fighting with both arms tied behind your back. In our evangelism, we're seeking to bring dead people to life. In our evangelism, we're seeking to bring people who are trapped in bondage to the evil one into freedom in Christ. Evangelism is spiritual work. It is supernatural work. It is demonically opposed work. Therefore, it must be prayerful work or it will be fruitless work. It's not a game. And that's not just our evangelism. You know, we've, we've done these child dedications today. And so I hope, I hope that you're hearing that, moms and dads. Parenting, you could just take evangelism out and insert parenting. Parenting is spiritual work supernatural work, demonically opposed work. Therefore, parenting needs to be prayerful work or it will be fruitless work because we are in a fight for our spiritual lives. And that is the language of the New Testament, even though as North American Christians, we we don't always think in this way, but the Apostle Peter wrote very clearly, be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I read this morning that the evil one, uh, I can't remember the exact metaphor, but he said something to the effect that the evil one loves to have the wind in his sails, meaning he'll look for the areas where we're weak, where we're susceptible, right? And then he'll put up his sail and he'll he'll hit us where we're soft. We need to be on guard. We need to be sober-minded. This is a spiritual warfare that we're in. And this miraculous episode in Ephesus reminds us of that. But I want to make sure you hear this next point. We need to see this in the passage too. As we consider this miraculous story, we learn that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And I'm drawing this straight from 1 John 4.4 where the beloved disciple reminds us, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so we just looked at that episode of the demoniac and it did not end well for the sons of Sceva. That was a a frightening episode, a discouraging episode for the sons of Sceva. But in that same episode, we as followers of Christ can be encouraged because when we listen to what that demon said, he said, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. Where was the weakness in this equation? He says, but who are you? These men, 
went into this spiritual warfare, and they should have been fearful, but they weren't. They had seen Paul doing things in Jesus' name, and so they, they thought they could wield Jesus like a good luck charm. And so they went into that house, you know, wielding the name of Jesus, thinking, well, this will be something. Let's bring this weapon in with us. I like the way one commentator describes it. He says, the name of Jesus, like an unfamiliar weapon misused, exploded in their hands. And they were taught a lesson about the danger of misusing the name of Jesus in their dabbling in the supernatural. So these men should have been afraid. Because Jesus is not a lucky charm, right? And they thought that they could just wield him superficially, and of course they can't. So they should have been afraid. But brothers and sisters, we don't wield Jesus like a good luck charm, do we? We saw this last week, if you were with us last week. We, we have been baptized, we have surrendered ourselves to Christ, and therefore we are not holding Jesus like a good luck charm. We are actually in Christ, and he is in us. And he has filled us by his Spirit and so as we walk into a room, unlike the sons of Sceva, when we walk into dark places, the power and authority of Jesus goes with us because he is in us, we are in him. In Luke's gospel, we read, the 72 disciples returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And there's a lot we could say about that passage. As we look at the Old Testament, that language of serpents and scorpions is a language that is applied to the demonic realm. And so I would argue that He's not talking about spirits and then including a thing about, and you can hang on to the snakes too. He's, this, he's saying, no, listen, that, that spiritual realm of darkness, because I'm with you, you now have authority, like God is working through you. But then, I, I include verse 20, because this is so important for us. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And I wanted to just land here as we kind of close the chapter on this supernatural episode because there are really two ditches, as there often are. And in the one ditch, and I'd say it's the ditch that most of us are in, it's the ditch of ignoring this spiritual warfare and just being, being so scientific, so I only believe the thing that I can see right in front of my face, that we ignore everything the New Testament teaches us about real spiritual battles that we are engaged in. So we want to get out of that ditch, but a lot of times people will come out of that ditch and they'll jump all the way over into this other ditch, and then we'll just become so obsessed with the spiritual realm, so fixated on the spiritual realm, that, that we become no earthly good. And Jesus is telling them, he's warning them, because they come back and they're like, whoa, this is insane. You know, like there's these demonic things, but greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. This is amazing. And he says, it, it, that's amazing. But you know what's more amazing? What's more amazing is that you have been saved. What's more amazing is that your sin has been removed from you and your name is written in heaven and you have redemption and new life. That's where we find our joy. So that's, that's what we major on. That's what we focus on, find our hope in. So therefore, we go out into the darkness with an awareness of the spiritual battle that we're in and we go out with boldness because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. But we're not rooting our joy or our focus in the fact that spirits are subject to us. We're rooting our focus and our joy in the miracle that our names are written in heaven. 
and we're sharing that news everywhere we go. That was a lot of attention for one detail in the story. So, but I feel like we just needed to clear the ground. So now we've, we've addressed that, and if I could just plead with you, if maybe you've still got some lingering questions there, can you just put those on mute for a second? Because there is more in this story that you need to see, and I would hate for you to miss it. So you can bring those questions back later. I'd love to talk to you. But now let's just zoom out for a second, and let's ask the question, what does this story teach us about the kind of ministry that flips a city upside down? Right, because next week we're going to see this great riot in Ephesus. The gospel has such an impact on this city that, that things are exploding in Ephesus. Well, what led up to that? What kind of ministry turns the city upside down? I want to just pull it four lessons for us. First, the kind of ministry that turns the city upside down is ministry that is animated by the power of God. And we've already talked at length about this, so I'll be very quick here. The message of our ministry Redeemer City Church, brothers and sisters in Christ. The message of our ministry is not come to Jesus and become a better father. Nor is it come to Jesus and become nicer or become more disciplined or become more respectable. Those are admirable goals and by God's grace, as we come to Jesus, he's gonna work all those things in us by one degree of glory to the next. But Jesus didn't simply come to help grumpy men become kind. He came to bring dead people to life. He came to set the captives free. And ministry that turns the city upside down is ministry that aims higher than simply self-help and entertainment. It's ministry that shoots instead for the supernatural, only God can do it, life transformation. Let's aim for that. And if we want to see that kind of supernatural power changing lives completely in our city, then we need to start asking for it. We need to be a people of prayer. We need to put less confidence in our strategies, in our programs, and more confidence in our battle on our knees. I was convicted by a quote that I came across recently, which said, we might begin to suspect that something is wrong when we soberly realize that the vast majority of the programs and the ministries in many of our Christian organizations and churches would continue on unabated, even if the Holy Spirit did not show up. Sometimes we can, we can just set our focus so low. You know, our focus is to provide a meal. You could provide a meal without the Holy Spirit, right? Our focus is to help parents become better parents. You can, you can do that without the whole help of the Holy Spirit. What we want then is we want to aim for real life change. And along the way, we can provide some meals and, and help dads become better dads, of course. But let's make sure that we are aiming for the stars, that we're aiming for what we've been called to aim for. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And Jesus says, and I am with you to the end of the age flip this city upside down with the gospel. Let's aim for that. There's a powerful savior working in and through us. Let's resolve today to stop trying to win spiritual battles in our own strength. We can't do it. Our own strength is not enough. That's the first lesson we learn here. Second, ministry that turns the city upside down is ministry that is saturated with the word of God. So before we even get to the miraculous episodes in Ephesus, we find Paul doing what he always does. So if you look back at verses 9 to 10, you know, our, our attention immediately fixates ahead of this, but 
when we, come, when we see him coming into Ephesus, he first goes into the synagogue, which, again, that's his practice. He goes to the people who have already been prepared to recognize the Messiah, and he opens the word of God, and he preaches, and he preaches. And he said, Jesus is the one that you've been waiting for. And for three months, he goes into the synagogue week after week, and he opens up the scriptures, and he points them to Jesus. But then we read in verses 9 to 10, But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them, and he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Isn't that amazing? All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. The hall of Tyrannus would have been like a a popular hall in the city, so he He must have gone in at a time when the hall wasn't in use and he was allowed to use it. And so after three months in the synagogue, he then spent two years preaching day after day in the hall of Tyrannus. Now Paul, at the same time, he was working while he was in Ephesus. So he's making tents. He's reasoning in the synagogue. This is, but, and all of it is just saturated in word ministry because Paul's ministry was marked by an unwavering conviction that there is power in the proclaimed word of God. Power. Charles Spurgeon once said, we need to defend the Bible about as much as we need to defend a lion. A much better strategy is to let it loose. Let it loose, Redeemer City Church. All scriptures breathed out by God. The Holy Spirit uses the word of God and wields it like a sword to cut through our stony hearts, to perform the surgery that we need. And if if you're here today and you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, then you have experienced this. I know that you have. This is what happens to us, right? There was a, let me try and describe one of the experiences you've had. You found yourself, you know, sitting maybe under the preaching of a sermon, and, and you felt like the preacher's speaking directly to me. It's like he's talking right to me, and of course it's not him. It's, it's the Word of God, right? The Word of God. It is speaking right to you. And this ancient book... <laughs> This book, I mean, we're talking like a letter that was written 2,000 years ago. Suddenly, as, as you hear that, it becomes the most relevant thing you've ever heard in your life. And it is applying to your life more than anything that you have heard. And it's, it's pressing right in. And for the first time, you feel exposed. You feel, you feel convicted. You, you find this kind of sense of trembling that like you've been laid bare before God. At the same time, you also feel loved like you've never been loved before and you feel known like you've never been known before and this whole miraculous thing is happening and it's happening as the word of God is being applied to your life and if you're a Christian you've experienced that you know that to be true there's power in the word of God the word goes forth and it never returns void the grass withers the flower fades the word of our God endures forever this power Paul believed it and so everywhere he went he just opens it up now some people it was like a power of death they heard it and they hated it but then there, for others, it was the word of life. And they heard it, and the Spirit of God opened their eyes, and it, everything changed. Now, but something happens often, not always, but there's something that seems to happen with Christians where we either go through this season of amnesia or stupidity, I'm not sure, but something kicks in, and we forget this, and we no longer believe it. And we think, what my neighbor really needs is not the, is not the Bible. You know, times have changed. They, wouldn't, they, they don't have the attention span for this. That's, that doesn't, that's not relevant enough for them. We need to reinvent our approach. We need to, maybe if I could just, maybe if I could just show my neighbor how nice I am, then eventually they'll come and they'll say, well, how, look how nice you are. I want to be like you. And then I'll, 
and that will be my inroad. By the way, none of us are that nice. I'm not that nice. I've got some pretty nice neighbors. They don't know Jesus. What do they need? They need to hear the word of God. And yet we convince ourselves, well, the times have changed. Says who? Says who? Can I let you in on a secret? You didn't think you wanted to hear from God's word either. We, we didn't. It, it's not like we came out of the womb saying, what I need is to hear the word of God preached to me. But, you know, then the culture changed. Now they come out wanting an iPad. That's not what happened. You didn't think you needed this. You didn't think you wanted this. But then the word of God went forth. Well, maybe, and I'm not, I'm doing this from a pulpit, but it, maybe it's, it's mom and dad opening up the scriptures with you or it's looking at the Bible with your friends or it's just you're sitting in, in your room and for whatever reason you, you open the scripture. We all have these different stories, but suddenly the spirit of God takes the word of God and he exposes everything and changes your life. And that's what he does today. And ministry that flips the city upside down believes that and therefore is saturated in the word of God. Let's go back to parenting. So we're talking about parenting today. The kind of parenting that that flips the child's life upside down is saturated with the word of God. Open the Bible in your homes. Open the Bible with your spouse, with your little ones, and, and just point them to this truth again and again and again. That's the second lesson we learn in this story. Third, ministry that turns the city upside down is ministry that invokes a fear of God. Paul preached faithfully and God is performing signs and wonders in and through Paul in the city of Ephesus. And we read in verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Now remember, the city of Ephesus was a uh, was a city that was already pretty wide open to supernatural things. The, the great temple of Artemis, you're going to hear more about that next week, was in the city. This is, like, this is who they were as a people. We're the people. We've got the temple of Artemis. They've, they've got magic books in their home, which we read about later. This is a, they're practicing magic, got false gods, and yet something happened. Paul comes in, and suddenly the name of Jesus is proclaimed in the city, and, and things are happening that are blowing their minds, and they realize that this God is not like the gods that we have known and worshipped. There's something about this God. Here is a God who is healing the sick, like completely healing their bodies, freeing those who are possessed. Here is a God before whom even the the demons are running away. Here's a God who will not be wielded like a good luck charm. As the Ephesians encountered the living God, a great fear fell upon the city. Now, we saw a similar episode back in Acts chapter 5. So let me just draw a line back so we can see a bit of a pattern here. In Acts chapter 5, that was the, the shocking story of Ananias and Sapphira when they attempted, they tried to lie to God. This is the hypocrisy in the church. They, they tried to lie to God, and God struck them down in chapter 5. And if you remember in verse 11, we read, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So we see it in Jerusalem, and now we see it in Ephesus. You know, God just exposing his holy power to the people and great fear falling. And we might be tempted as we read these stories to think, oh no, well, there go the evangelistic efforts in the city. If, if everybody's afraid of God, that's not, what you're, that's not what you want. That's not very approachable. That's, that's going to slow things down. Screech it to a halt is what we think. 
But if we look back at chapter 5, we're reading verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. If we look at our text today in verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. In both of these stories, here's what you need to see. The cities were transformed when they witnessed, for lack of a better term, the godness of God. When they saw him for who he is, things changed, and they changed fast, and they changed radically. By way of application, when we as men and women of God, when we attempt to soft sell God, when we attempt to you know, soften off all the, the sharp edges, um, when we try to you know, make a God who actually just kind of looks more like a, a deified version of you and me, and we, we present that to our peers, we think that we're furthering evangelism, but the opposite is true. Because the world does not need to catch a glimpse of a bigger version of you. You don't need a bigger version of you. A bigger version of you wouldn't help anything. In fact, if we're being honest, a bigger version of me would be the worst thing for this world. What the world needs is to catch a glimpse of our God who is a consuming fire. Our God who is holy, holy, holy and just and righteous and pure and true and love and merciful. It's only when we see him for who he truly is that we're enabled to finally see what we need to see to see the horror of our sin, to see that there's something that is wrong, broken in me, broken in everyone around me, broken in this city, broken in this world, and to see the the horror of it, that there is a holy, perfect God, and there's this in me, and what can I do? Where can I hide? How can I run from him? And, And it's only in that moment that we're prepared to receive the good news of the gospel, that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. That God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That doesn't sound like good news. That doesn't sound like any news until we see the severity of our sin before our holy God. But it's when we see him rightly and the fear of the Lord falls on us that everything changes. Everything changes. Which is why in Proverbs 1-7 to it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So if you don't begin there, if you don't see him for who he is, if you don't start there, then nothing else fits. That's, that's where the gravity, you know, you think of your solar system. You take the sun out of the center of the solar system, everything falls to pieces because the sun is the biggest thing. It belongs at the center. It's got the gravitational pull that keeps everything in orbit. If, if, if you don't see him and you try to start somewhere else, you try to start with you, put yourself at the center, everything crumbles and crashes. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom where everything changes what Ephesus needed was a wake-up call and I, I would argue church it's the same thing Aurelia needs it's the same thing every city needs until Christ returns that's the third lesson we learn here but then fourth and finally ministry that turns a city upside down is ministry that is marked by real repentance look with me at verse 18 to 19 this is also Many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, 
I'll confess, the, this is the detail that really grabbed hold of me this week as I was preparing. I want to communicate this well. At first glance, when we read this story, it seems like, you know, Paul came in and he preached the gospel in Ephesus. People got saved and immediately burned their books, and it was hallelujah, right? But when we look closer at this story, really think about the details. Look again at verse 18. Look closely. It says, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. This this bonfire experience, it's not as if there was like a bonfire that lasted for two years in Ephesus. That, that was like a one day. Like one day everything changed and then boom, massive bonfire in the streets. And who's coming out to bring their magic books? Many of those who are now believers. Meaning, so Paul's ministering for two and a half, three years in the city of Ephesus. People are coming to Christ. But there are people who are coming to Christ and they've, they've placed their trust in Jesus and yet they've still got a book of magic sitting on the table in their house or sitting up on the shelf. That's an interesting detail. And so Paul's, he's ministering in the city and there's no riots, like nothing's gone crazy just yet because you've got people that are getting converted but there's still some, there's still some blind spots in their lives, right? Still some things that have not been surrendered to the Lord. They're worshiping with the congregation but then they're going home to a home that, that possesses arts of witchcraft in their home. And what's interesting in the text is it doesn't say that then the people who were pretending to be believers came out of their homes and burnt the books. These were real believers, the text says, who had books of magic at their home, which suggests to me that real Christians can have real massive blind spots. It reminds me that this process of change, that God saves us but then he begins this work of sanctification and change. And that, sometimes that works really slowly. And sometimes there's a blind spot that we don't see. Actually, can I be honest with you? Every single believer in this room, we still have those blind spots we don't see. Like none of us are, are perfect. None of us are yet looking exactly like Jesus. Now, but we all start in different places. And when you start in a city like Ephesus, where people are immersed in witchcraft and wickedness, when they get saved, on day one, they're not realizing that that book of magic on my shelf needs to go. So they're truly saved people who've got massive blind spots. And as we do ministry in dark places like Aurelia, we need to have a category for that. That people can come to Christ and still have massive blind spots in their life. And God is working and God is moving. But now, so having said that, now I want you to see this. The ministry in Ephesus is moving along slowly while you've got this this church that's not yet kind of seeing the full picture. Things are moving slowly. When does the city change? When the fear of the Lord falls on the city and falls on the church and a wave of repentance rushes over the city and rushes over the church and all of these believers look in their homes and realize, I say I follow him, but I have that on my shelf. Suddenly they're all yanking them out off the shelf and they're throwing them in the street and a bonfire starts and the text tells us that that bonfire was worth 50,000 pieces of silver. Can I give you some context? One commentator says, the value of the rubbish was high, corresponding to the wages of 50,000 workmen for a day's work. 50,000 days of wages. Do the math for you. That's 137 years wages burning in the center of the street. That's called real repentance. And the city saw that. Everybody saw that. Everybody was gripped by that. 
That changed the church in Ephesus. It changed the culture in Ephesus. We're going to see next week, it changed the economy in Ephesus. And the world took notice. Because half-hearted, you know, one foot in, one foot out, playing around with sin in the background, churches don't change the world and don't change the city. When, when people look at us, brothers and sisters, and, they, and we say, we talk about the power of God, and then they look at our lives and they say, this power of God doesn't have the power to change you? Like, you look just like me. You look just like the world. You're playing with sin just like I'm playing with sin. That doesn't change anyone. But when they see real repentance, when we change, when, and God does this in us, right? When he finally moves in our hearts and we say, I am playing a game and I gotta let this go. That's when a city gets flipped upside down. Seems to me it start, started in the church. It started as, as a group of people who were legitimately believers, legitimately followers of Jesus, but had not let go of some things. When they laid that down and repented and the fear of the Lord fell, that changed the city. Revival starts in the household of God. I pray that we would see an Ephesus-like move of the Spirit here in Aurelia. I really do. That we would see more power, more hunger for his word, more fear of the Lord, more repentance. And as we see that, I pray that he would flip this city, the city of Aurelia, upside down, such that it could be said of us as it was said of Ephesus, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. We just came back from our elders' retreat, and uh, if I could just say, we, uh, we went away and Cornerstone, the elders from Cornerstone were there as well, and so we met with them, and then we separated to talk about what God's doing here, and then we came back together to pray, and one of the things that, that has really struck me is that it seems as if God is doing a really sweet work in the city of Aurelia. It, like a, there's like a simmering building thing, and I'm not saying I have some prophetic word. I don't. I just say, objectively, as I look at the city of Aurelia and I'm looking at what he's doing in the churches, I see him doing something. And I, I would not be shocked if we might not discover in two years that this is, the, this is the two years of simmering. The word of God is going forth. It's going forth in our cities. It's going forth in our families, in our workplaces. That people are coming to Christ. And yet I suspect if there aren't some things that, that we're still holding on to, and that the real wave, the real transformation, I wonder if it won't come when, when collectively the people of God sense the fear of the Lord and we finally, once and for all, let that go. I don't know, but uh, I do feel like he's doing something, something sweet. And he'll do what is right and he'll do what we need. And to that end, we seek him and we ask for him to move mightily in our midst. So let's pray together. Oh, great God, we love you. And we, uh, we just, we want to know you more. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see you for who you are, not who we invent you to be. Lord, I pray that we would cast down our own idols. Lord, whatever the proverbial book of magic is that we have hidden in our living room, I pray that, that today your spirit would bring repentance and that we would throw it down on the floor and light a match, and it would be done. God, I pray that we would turn 
turn from the half-heartedness, the lukewarmness. Lord, we want to see real repentance, real power at work in our midst. And God, we can't do these things in our strength. Lord, we're reminded of that. This is not the self-help club. That's not who we are. We are a broken people who are, who are transformed by our holy God. And we need you to do that transforming work in us because we can't do it in and of ourselves. So God, would you move? Would you work? Um, Lord, would you help us to see? The thing with blind spots is we don't even see them, God. So would you open our eyes to see them? Lord, whether it's, maybe it's from the, the words of a friend. Lord, faithful are the wounds of a friend that they would point us to the thing we're not seeing. Lord, maybe it's just as we look to your word and you expose something we hadn't seen or, or just your Holy Spirit bringing a conviction we have not felt. But God, we want to know you more and more and we want to turn away from the things of this world. God, because we, we know that doesn't satisfy. Lord, all of the false gods, all of the idols, all of the things that we, we sought to comfort ourselves with in the past, Lord, it leaves us empty and dry. What we need is you. And I thank you that we have you Lord Jesus, thank you that you came and you lived for us and you died for us and you have ascended and you sent your spirit. I thank you, Lord, that that there is salvation extended out to everyone in this room. God, if we repent and believe, you save sinners and you make us children of God. I pray that you do that work today. And Lord, as we continue to respond to you and look to you and love you, God, I pray that the world would see something in us um, that's not us, Lord, that they would see right through us and see you at work. So God, we ask for your help in this. We, we pray that you would do what only you can do. And uh, Lord, we want to set our sights higher. We want to set our sights for, for those God-sized, undeniable things. And that transformed life is right at the top of that list. God, would you do it? We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?